Hello, and welcome to this edition of the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast. The Oregon Wine History Archive is located at Linfield College in McMinnville, Oregon, and is dedicated to preserving and sharing the Oregon wine story. This podcast will share these stories through oral history interviews we've conducted throughout the industry. Please enjoy these stories. We are here with Tim and Denise Wilson from Denison Cellars um, on July 13th, 2017 in Nicholson Library. And the first question we like to ask everyone uh, is why wine? Why wine? It's a good question. Um, I started in the wine industry because I was really dissatisfied with my first career. Um, I have a degree in economics and um, got that at South Dakota State. Started um, working right away with Citibank in the credit card industry as a you know as a manager. Um, did that for a couple of years in South Dakota and then several years in Florida. Ultimately, hated it. Decided to go back to school. Um, my real interests uh, going into college were science-based type careers. Um, my first choice was geology. However, um, by the time I ended up at South Dakota State, which was 19. 84. I had spent four years in the Marine Corps and I got a full ride running scholarship at South Dakota State. They did not have a geology program. So along the way I had taken an econ course and kind of enjoyed it. Wasn't sure what else I wanted to do. They didn't have a lot of science-based degrees that I wanted. Um, so I finished the degree in economics and ended up with Citibank and bank cards. Um, while in Florida, well, Citibank turned to AT&T when they did a credit card um, offering in 1990, I believe, late 89, 90. We ended up moving to Jacksonville, Florida. Um, when I left the industry four years later, I was, um, I was no longer running competitively because I had knee surgery in college and that ended that dream, but I was still able to race bicycles. And so I was riding for a master's um, bicycle team, racing team in North Florida. Um, one of my teammates and close friends was really into microbrews and wine. And so we started meeting regularly on Fridays and just trying new wines. When I decided that that career wasn't going to work for me in cranking bank cards, I went back to school at the University of North Florida, um, thinking about a biology, thinking sports medicine, something science-based. So I started on a biology degree track um, for a second, you know, second degree. Um, to pay some of the bills at that point, I took a job as a wine manager at a big wine shop in Jacksonville, Florida, and ultimately got to taste literally thousands of different wines because we put on events all the time. And as I did that, I became, you know, as a wine manager, I had to educate staff, um, just my interest in different wine regions and trying different wines, and, um, and all of that just expanded at that point. And, um, in just a, a relatively short period of time, it grew from you know, just trying new things to educating people to really becoming interested in the whole process of winemaking. And so when, um, an unfortunate thing happened in the classroom, I, I got a C in organic chemistry while <laughs> I was trying to um, take three lab sciences at the same time. Mm -hmm. And to get into any grad school, um, I had to have straight A's. And so PT school, pre-med thing, that all had to be reevaluated at that point. And so 
I looked at other options, mm-hmm. and one of the other options that 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 stuck out to me was a degree in enology, and so at that point in the United States, really there were only a few universities that had strong enology programs on the East Coast would be Cornell and Virginia Tech. Um, West Coast, um, I looked at UC Davis, fully expecting that that would be the track I would, or the school I would end up at, um, and Fresno State University. So, um, followed up with visits to both of those and with discussions with um, longtime winemakers in Sonoma and Napa. And, you know, that, that's actually where the Fresno State um, introduction happened. One of those um, winemakers was of the Behringer family. He was working at Duckhorn Vineyards in Napa Valley, and he was a Fresno State grad. He said, no, you really need to visit Fresno State. You need to check <laughs> out the program. It's a lot better than you realize. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so I did. Um, I called and found, you know, got some information, and, and um, we were on a visit to California when this was happening, and then we went back to Florida, and it wasn't a week or two later that I got a phone call while I was still studying for classes. This was, I think I, we went over our spring break that mm-hmm. year, and, um, and it was the director of the enology program at Fresno State actually making a recruiting call, which I thought was kind of ironic in a way that, you know, in high school, I was thinking I was trying to get a scholarship to run. Mm-hmm. Um, and I didn't get any offers or scholarship calls then, even though, you know, I was a, I was a pretty good runner. Um, you know, I got to our state meet, and, and uh, but now, several years later, I'm getting recruiting calls for an academic reason to make wine. And so, um, and so that's how we ended up at Fresno State. But that's a short story made very relatively long, but um, that's kind of how the interest expanded and grew and, and became you know, an academic endeavor and then obviously a professional yeah. endeavor after that. Um, can you talk a little bit about um, from Fresno State um, to um, when you started your own label, what you did in between that time? Yeah, that, um, it's funny because I never really wanted to start my own label as mm-hmm. part of the process. Um, I was perfectly happy working for other wineries. Um, so from Fresno State, um, I along the way had gone to several you know wine um, industry conferences, and one of those was a kind of a job fair. And mm-hmm. I visited with Chateau Saint Michel's table, and Chateau Saint Michel has a, a white winery in Seattle, and they have their red wine facility mm-hmm. in Eastern Washington, and. Um, it's actually closer to, closest to Patterson, which most people don't know. It's on the Columbia River, but mm-hmm. um, not too far from Prosser. And they asked me to leave a resume, and I thought it was for Eastern Washington. I really didn't have any interest in living in the Tri-Cities or Prosser or Eastern Washington, um, but I had you know, a nice conversation with the folks and um, got a phone call not too long after that, again, they expressed some interest. They were kind of recruiting me, and I thought, well, okay, Eastern Washington, I'm just gonna to have to tell them no, I'm not really interested, and they reminded me that, no, this is for a white winemaking position in Seattle. I said, oh, Seattle, yeah, I really actually had wanted, I mean, Seattle was a city I, I really, really enjoyed when I visited. I'm from the mid, upper Midwest, in Twin Cities, and um, Seattle has a feel, just at a personal level, that's really similar 
to, the, to Minneapolis, just the way people communicate in a way. And, and it was really um, a city that I, I enjoyed a lot. And so when that happened, I, my tail started wagging pretty hard. I <laughs> decided, you know, I think I'm going to pursue this. So, mm -hmm. yeah, we ended up in Seattle. Um, I got an entry-level enologist um, winemaking position um, in Seattle. Mostly white wines. We did work a little bit with red wines. Um, the, they do a, a reserve level red wine blend. It's their artist series wine. And we did all the blending and trialing in Seattle, but not the actual processing of the wines. That was all done in Eastern Washington. So, so we lived in Seattle for two years. Um, our assistant winemaker had left. That would be the next career step for me from enologist, um, but they felt I didn't have enough time in position to interview for the job. Mm -hmm. And so they hired an, another assistant winemaker. So at that point, um, you know, you don't want to remain an, an enologist forever. Um, I started looking at other options and one that, that um, came up was an assistant winemaking job in San Luis Obispo, California, at a winery called Edna Valley Vineyard. Mm -hmm. and. Um, what appealed to me with that is that, number one, I wasn't making 100% white wines anymore, um, mm -hmm. um, or 99.9%, .9%, and, and that they had Pinot Noir there. And albeit not the most preeminent region for producing Pinot Noir in the Central Coast, it was Pinot Noir. And I wanted to really learn how to make Pinot Noir. I, along the way, I had, Pinot had become one of my favorite you know, varietals to, to, to drink. Mm -hmm. um, and um, so that, that really appealed to me. We, they did 25,000 cases of Pinot Noir, among other things. And the winery had a pretty good reputation as well because it was part of the Shalom Wine Group. Um, and of course, that didn't last forever. They were purchased by a very large drinks manufacturing company um, about four years after I took that job in San Luis. And that's about the time I started looking at leaving there mm -hmm. because um, we were tasked with becoming a completely different brand than what Edna Valley, Valley Vineyard was originally. So, um, so at that point when I started looking at other opportunities, I'd been an assistant winemaker for four and a half years and um, one that came up was a head winemaking position at Benton Lane Winery, um, which is um, just south of Corvallis, north of Eugene. Um, so I'm going to interject a fun little anecdote here. Uh, what appealed to me about that wine, or that winery, was the fact that it was closer to Eugene, still in the Willamette Valley. In 1980, um, before I left for boot camp in the Marine Corps, you know, I ran track in high school, graduated mm -hmm. in 79, and the one thing we did before leaving for boot camp was my, my high school track coach, and assistant coach, and I um, did a road trip. And we, we took this van and we slept in the van or wherever we could, camped and went to the U.S. Olympic trials track and field meet in Eugene. <laughs> and we really, really enjoyed, I really enjoyed Eugene at that point. <laughs> that this is the coolest town. It's all about running. It's green, you know, lots of hills. And, um, and so when this job offer came up at, at Benton Lane, I found out, well, you know, you could live in Eugene and commute to that winery. Mm -hmm. That was pretty appealing. <laughs> Plus, it was all Pinot Noir, and um, it, and I'll admit now, it was a bit of a leap to go from a very structured California way of making wine 
which is very orderly, very, there's a, the industry is mature enough there in, in California that um, there's, a, it, it, there's a very structured way of progressing your career of, of just making wine. And Oregon really is a little looser. Mm -hmm. um, and, and a lot of unfiltered wines here, which I hadn't even worked with before. Um, in any case, I took the job and I, I didn't, <laughs> I accepted it without even actually meeting the owners of Benton Lane. Oh, and wow. <laughs> ultimately, that probably led to me leaving there. You know, the relationship was a little bit rocky you know, for the two years I was there. Although I was able to make wines that were higher scoring wines and publications than they've ever had. Mm -hmm. um, and even to this day, I don't think they've matched that. But, um, but the, the relationship didn't work out. And so I left in February of 2008. Mm -hmm. Well, in 2008, um, I didn't fully appreciate how bad the economy was when I left Benton Lane. Mm -hmm. Typically, when a winemaker leaves in an area, it becomes a domino effect and people just move. So winemaker A goes to here, winemaker follow. It, it turns this whole pattern of just following the, the, you know, the next domino to fall. Um, well, no way, that wasn't, it, it, it pretty much shut down. And so I left Benton Lane and then nothing really opened up. And so for almost a year, year and a half, I was helping out at other wineries, but um, nothing career furthering at that point, but nothing, no head wine making jobs were happening, period. And so that's when the whole idea, I thought, well, I have this degree, it's a second degree, I'm not gonna move, I'm not gonna switch streams like now again. Mm -hmm. um, then we started really looking at, okay, what about trying to launch our own label? You know, and, um, that's, and that's, that's where Dennis and Sellers started. You know, we, we, um, we really didn't have other options at that point in the, in the wine industry. And, mm -hmm. and actually, a lot of places. I mean, the economy was really, really, you know, the Great Recession was, things weren't moving. Mm -hmm. Those who had jobs were certainly not leaving, you know, because um, there was nowhere to go. Mm -hmm. I was a little slow to, you know, a little slow to catch on to that. But, <laughs> um, but it, it ultimately, that's why we're here now. You know, and, and in retrospect, I mean, I wouldn't, I wouldn't change anything because of the, some of the flexibility you get with being self-employed and raising kids who are active in athletics and other academic things and the ability to be part of all of that. I mean, you only get that chance once. Mm -hmm. So ultimately, it's, it's worked out really well mm -hmm. in that regard. Um, so so that's, how we got, that's how we got to Denison. And can you talk a little bit about um, being on the outside, looking in to this whole um, journey of his? Like, what was that like? It was um, quite a journey. Mm -hmm. um, Tim had made the decision, or well, we made the decision together for him to go back to school in Florida. So we sold our house, um, got a little duplex, and I, and we kind of figured out how to kind of just stretch everything to be able to make that work. Um, I've been a nurse since 1989. Mm 
So my job was very helpful in being able to just allow me to support wherever we lived. I could pick up and work. Mm -hmm. um, as long as you're not too picky, you can find a job, <laughs> you know. Do, and so I had some uh, adventures with that and I was able to experiment or experience different things in my career moving. And I think I kind of have a little bit of a sense of adventure anyway. So moving to me, you know, you kind of just, it's a little bit like a military frame of mind where it's like, oh, we're going to move again. Okay. And you just kind of get your ducks in a row and and move on to the next adventure. Um, moving from Florida to California was a little bit um, more personally difficult because we, we found out we were pregnant with our first son the week before we moved. <laughs> and um, there were other life events that were happening at that point. His too. parents were both having uh, health problems at that time at young ages. And so we were dealing with that as well as myself working the night shift, putting him through school. Um, our, so our son was born 10 weeks early, so we had a four wow. pound baby that we brought home. Um, so- uh, Not right away, mind you. Right, yeah. He, a couple weeks in the he was NICU. A few weeks in the, yeah, I see you. Um, but we, you know, we had amazing support, like even at the hospital in Fresno, you know, they were donating time because I'd only been there a few months and um, so lots of things that happened that that were um, kind of just cool you know to see how people respond when you're going through difficult times like that um, loved Seattle loved San Luis Obispo loved Eugene we love mm -hmm. McMinnville um, we've just been really fortunate to to be in really great communities along the way and hook up with great friends that we've met all along the way. So, um, yeah, it's been hard at times, but also, you know, experiences that I also would not say, you know, if I had it to do over again, it, it was hard, but, you know, it's it was worth it. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, it's it's been good. And then also with, uh, with him starting kind of slow and small with this label at the time the boys were in um, middle school and high school he was kind of there for everything for them so um, while I was working mm -hmm. yeah so that part of it was irreplaceable you know So why did you guys decide to come to McMinnville then? Well, we, we left, um, we were living in Eugene when I made wine at Benton Lane. And when I left that, um, I realized that the south end of the valley really isn't on the radar, um, you know, for, um, you know, for fine Pinot Noir. Mm -hmm. And so we looked at trying to get closer to Ground Zero. And I, it, I look at Ground Zero as Dundee, Carleton, McMinnville, kind of a triangle, where most of the highest, um, most acclaimed vineyards are located. And I figured to be making wine, if I wanted to make wine in, in the, you know, Pinot Noir in the Willamette Valley, I wanted it to be of the highest quality. And the only way to do that is get to the highest quality fruit. And so, um, we looked at relocating north mm -hmm. from Eugene. Um, 
started looking north of McMinnville actually, but quite honestly, McMinnville was the first town we could afford at that point because the housing bubble hadn't burst yet and mm -hmm. it was on the verge. We, we, we didn't realize how close it was to bursting. So we ended up buying a home in McMinnville. And um, of course, then the housing market just crashed. And, um, but it, that, it turned out fine. It's, it's nice, it, you know, it turns out it's a great town for the kids and um, we're real happy with the way, you know, everything worked out. But mm -hmm. um, really though, to get closer to the better fruit, and to mm -hmm. be more be closer just to the whole process and, and other people in the industry too. And then what were some of the challenges in the early years of starting your own label? Well, money. <laughs> I mean, everyone, pretty much everyone could say that, I think. But, mm -hmm. you know, a lot of, um, and I guess we'll get, at some point we should, we should talk about what's happening to the industry here now because um, part of, Oregon not being as structured and as um, as as like I don't know organized as the California wine industry is that you have an awful lot of really small family run wineries and um, a lot of these aren't starting with a whole lot of cash you know they're not some second um, career um, you know spending retirement money on on, on land and. Um, an awful lot of us are just starting, you know, from scratch, basically. And mm -hmm. so, yeah, the biggest challenge is, is, is getting enough capital even to, to get a startup going. And even at a small level, we started with two tons of fruit that first two years. Mm -hmm. Well, it only makes about 110 cases of mm -hmm. wine. And, um, but finding a place to process it, um, the cost of bottling, the cost of fruit, the cost of barrels, which are... The Pinot Noir, um, very expensive because you can't use American oak, which is less mm -hmm. expensive. It's all French oak. Um, and the fact that you're spending two years worth of producing wine, two vintages, before you get a single cent of return on that first vintage that you produced because it takes that long to get it to the market. Mm -hmm. And so that's, that was the biggest challenge was, was, you know, cobbling together enough money to to do that um, and you're relying on other people if you're renting space which is what I'm doing is renting space in another winery for production mm -hmm. um, you know finding that space that works for you and um, and, and just growing it and, and growth too is it continues to be a real challenge because of that whole the whole phenomenon that it takes two years and you're paying for two vintages to get a return. Um, and so growth has to be stepwise rather than linear. Mm -hmm. And you, you know, you have to build your sales channels, you know, and, um, and all that. So my background before starting our own label was purely production. And that's another one of the challenges is that as soon as you start with your own label, you realize that production becomes a small part of what you're doing. Mm -hmm. And it becomes a marketing and sales job. Mm -hmm. And honestly, I spend, um, I'm, I'm even feeling a little bit stretched right now because I really, I, I recently, you know, the last two years we expanded our production. We're at that new step level and I have to build the sales channels to, you know, support that. Mm -hmm. And um, so production is definitely not taking a complete backseat 
but finding the time to, to, to manage both. And, and they're both very different in their perspectives. Mm-hmm. You know, with, with sales, you're out there and you're mixing it, mixing it up with people and, and um, with production, it's a lot more, at times, introspective. And, you know, you get into a zone in the winery where you're not really talking with anyone when you're a sole, you know, the only employee of your company mm-hmm. that's in production, in the production side. So um, it's 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 an interesting, you know, um, difference I guess in, in perspective. But but again, it, the sales part is it, it was initially the tough part, you know, one of the big challenges, and it still is. Mm-hmm. You know, just getting in front of enough people to to make it work. Yeah. Um, so you talked a little bit um, about how you don't have your own vineyard. Um, how did you find that venue that you do use and how did you build that relationship? Yeah, that, now we started, um, so 2009 was our first vintage mm-hmm. and that started with a vineyard called the Kiff Vineyard and it's just outside of town here in North and it's in the Angel Carlton AVA. Um, Joel Kiff, his kids are involved in the McMinnville School mm-hmm. District. He was actually helping coach a soccer team that our oldest son was on. And, um, we, you know, just in talking, realized he had a vineyard, and I mentioned that we were, you know, we were thinking about looking to try to find a couple tons, and, and he had been selling his fruit to Rex Hill, mm-hmm. and um, ultimately we decided to buy two tons from him, and from there it grew. I, you know, I, I, I that first wine was really, you know, very well received. Um, I liked the fruit that I got, and was able to make, you know, good wine and. So I continued with that, and I still buy fruit from the Kiff Vineyard. Mm-hmm. Along the way, you know, the whole business plan when I built it was to have three vineyard sources um, from three different AVAs to have a variety of, um, you know, different Pinot Noirs mm-hmm. um, in our portfolio. And so we had the Yamhill Carlton with Kiff. Um, in 2011, we, in a very similar situation we were at um, a basketball game at Grand Haven. <laughs> Our youngest played basketball all the time. He's no longer big enough to play basketball. <laughs> um, and he never will be. Um, we were sitting next to um, the wife of one of the assistant coaches on the, on the opposing basketball team, but we knew them and mm-hmm. the Johnsons. Um, and she mentioned that their vineyard was producing fruit for the first time that fall mm. in 2011, and that their buyer had bailed, had had gone oh, out of business basically. His oh, winery gosh. failed, and so she had no buyer for their fruit. And I said, "Well, you know, I'm looking at you know getting another vineyard source. Let's let's take a look. I'm interested." And so mm-hmm. we went and looked at the property, and it's it's on Walnut Hill in the Eola Amity Hills. So. Mm-hmm. Second Vineyard, um, different AVA, um, south-facing, perfect elevation between 450 and 600 feet, um, tight space vines. It's a really nice little vineyard. And so we decided, you know what, I want it. And so, but again, it was at an athletic. <laughs> Athletics is kind of the theme here, I guess. Um, but um, at a basketball game, and that we made that connection. And um, we still buy fruit from them as well. And so Johnson Ridge is one of our, our single vineyard sources. Mm-hmm. And um, 
still haven't locked in a third vineyard yet. We're working on that, but it's, I'm not in a rush to do that either. It needs to be, our, our goal with this is to, is to establish long-term relationships with these people and not, I don't want to be in the business of, of um, shopping vineyards every year for a different source of fruit. You know? mm -hmm. Not a big enough winery to do that. Don't plan on being a big enough winery to have to worry about that. Mm -hmm. So um, we have some potentials for that third. We're buying fruit from another vineyard in the McMinnville AVA this coming harvest. And we're going to give that a shot and see if it works out. But um, It lends to the consistency of the wines, too, to have the yeah. same vineyards every year. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so. and that's, um, yeah, that's absolutely an important thing in establishing, you know, the label over time is consistency and, and, um, and, and then, you know, with different single vineyard bottlings, sometimes there are some producers who produce so many of them that people lose track of, I, I don't remember if I liked this vineyard versus that. I think three is, is a manageable number for sure. Mm -hmm. yeah. And the other thing that, that the different vineyard sourcing does for us is it enables me to have all kinds of material to create a reserve wine mm -hmm. that is a combination of portions from those vineyards as well. Um, and an entry-level, so-called entry-level anyway, Pinot Noir, that's a Willamette Valley designated mm -hmm. that is also made from all the vineyard sources that I get. And so, and then blending is really an important, it's, it's, it's a tool, um, it's a really important tool to have. It, it gives you more complexity and it, it, there's just a lot more things you can do with a wine when it's not all just one vineyard. Yeah. So um, having that multiple vineyard sourcing enables us to do a lot of fun things with the Willamette Valley and the reserve wine. So. Mm -hmm. Uh, did you guys ever consider starting your own vineyard? Not no. at this stage in our lives, no. <laughs> it takes forever to pay itself back. For about a minute and a half. Yeah. No. Yeah. We, we just know that starting at this time in our lives that we just would do it this way. Tim is passionate about blending the wines. Um, you know, Joel Kiff planted his vineyard himself, mm -hmm. you know. He's passionate about that. Yeah. So it didn't make sense for either of them to try to do the other, mm -hmm. you know, so. Yeah, and it, it's just, a, it's a full-time job. Honestly, mm -hmm. it's, it's, you know, in, in, in many things, especially in small businesses where you have relatively few employees, you can do a lot of things, but you can't do all of them well. Mm -hmm. You know, you can only do a couple of them well. and. Um, for me, the, the thinking is I'd rather have the vineyard be managed by someone who does it really well mm -hmm. because I'm pretty good with the production side and, um, and becoming more adept at the marketing side. Let the vineyard happen with other people. You know, and I'm out there actually, though, you know, before harvest assessing. I make the decisions as to when we're picking. Mm -hmm. And so I'm sampling and, and measuring sugar levels and acid levels. And tasting the skins and, and all that so um, so my involvement in the vineyard becomes a lot more um, intense about you know three weeks before potential harvest dates mm -hmm. but other than that I'll let the you know I let the vineyard people do what they're gonna do and 
and it takes a long time to the other thing is it takes forever to pay back but it also takes forever to produce fruit mm-hmm. you know it's a four-year deal and, um, and you know it, it, it in a way owning the vineyard from a sales perspective would be kind of a lucrative thing because when people go to a vineyard and a winery in a vineyard they're buying wine it's it's not a random thing it's it's already in their mind that they're going to be buying wine mm-hmm. um, so it's another one of our challenges being the way we're set up is that we have to do it a little bit differently than that we're working a lot of events big events um, sometimes we're guest winemakers at different tasting rooms um, but we don't have that and we, we deal with a lot more people who are interested in tasting but it's definitely more of a hand sell at that level than it is in the vineyard. Mm-hmm. The other part of it for us too is we ne- we want to be small, we want to stay more on a boutique level in order to maintain the quality and allow Tim to be involved with a blending in the day-to-day so that he doesn't lose touch with that. So yeah. we don't have an interest in becoming huge and taking more time away from him doing what he loves and you know more time into the sales part of it. So yeah if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. So why did you guys make the name Denison Ben? Um, seller, sorry. There's some thought that actually went into all this with the label mm-hmm. and with, um, yeah. you know, the, the, my focus on the winemaking side is to create really elegant, um, classy wines that aren't over the top with oak or with extraction or anything like that. So that being said, we wanted our package to, to reflect that. Mm-hmm. And um, so just visually, the way the cursive is, the bamboo, you know, it's all very, there's some subtleties to that label that, that we really like that are trying to make a person think that when they look at it, that, wow, you know, this looks like it's probably could be you know, pretty, pretty good. But so when it came to the name, we, you know, Wilson is a name we can't use for anything. Mm-hmm. It's it's too, um, yeah. It's 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 too. Um, I would say copyrighted or patented. Uh-huh. And there's a Wilson Family Winery in Lodi, California, that um, is fairly litigious when people start using their names. So, mm-hmm. so we knew Wilson was out. And the other thing that um, we wanted to do with, you know, with the whole labeling is we wanted three syllables. Um, Two seems a little bit clipped. Four can be busy. So three sounded about right. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so Denise Wilson Dennison. And so we just contracted her, her name. And, mm-hmm. and, it, and it fit our plan kind of. Yeah. You know, the, the, the double plan to be, um, you know, I don't know. Just it just fit the, it fit the, the the mold and it you know I first brought it up and Denise wasn't all that excited about it, no, but I couldn't think of anything else. So <laughs> it just kept coming back. It, it just kept coming back to that. Yeah. So. Um. And the funny thing about the bamboo is that we, when we were in college, and when we got together and got our first apartment and what have you, we immediately started getting into Asian furniture mm-hmm. and everything in our home is is Asian it's just what we both seem to gravitate towards so we have we have 
script, silk prints and different things like that. Mm -hmm. So Japanese screen. Right. And so we, uh, I just said somehow we should incorporate bamboo into the label just to kind of, you know, is a subtle thing about who we are, you know. Well, it's elegant. Yeah. It, it's, it, 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 again, it fits the whole, the whole image package. You know, the and the, the meaning of bamboo fit in with what we, uh, you know, I started reading up on it. And it's very resilient. It doesn't break. Mm -hmm. It can bend. It's very soft <laughs> and elegant. So and you can't get rid of it once it's there. <laughs> we talked about that part. No, that's a new one. So anyway, it's just kind of a little subtlety that most people don't know about, but... Asian people do tend to, a lot of times, you know, if you're at an event and you'll see, you know, we'll get comments on the label. In fact, we just um, made a, just a big sale to Japan, Japan um, yeah. a couple of months ago, so through a roundabout way. So anyway, it's, it's been, it, it's who we are, I think. I think it tries to explain who, who we are, so. Chris now did a great job designing that, trying to put that together for us. So, mm -hmm. uh, how would you describe um, your winemaking philosophy? Balance, and that sounds cliche, <laughs> but um, you know, having the degree in enology, fully aware of all the things I can do to manipulate wine, mm -hmm. to try to steer it in a direction. Um, honestly, I don't want to do any of that. I'm lazy. I don't want to have to try to manage all that. Actually, though, I do believe that the balance that you get in the vineyard is what you want to try to maintain throughout the process. Mm -hmm. And if you're picking your fruit at, at, at the right time, you really don't have to do a heck of a lot as a winemaker except get out of the way. And that, that's really my focus is um, it's just letting the fruit in the vineyard and the vintage express itself through the wines. That, and again, it all sounds really cliche. You'll hear this, you'll read this in the press, mm -hmm. coming from winemakers' mouths. From a good chunk of them, it's BS, <laughs> because your degree is. A lot of winemakers feel like they're not doing anything if they're not getting involved somehow. Mm -hmm. And um, I found that I've had better luck just letting things express themselves. Now, there are vintages where there's just no way you're going to pull that off. And we've had a couple in the last, you know, even in our label, we've had two vintages, 2011, 2013, where it was, was crucial that I had, a, a, you know, an academic background in winemaking because I had to intervene a lot. Mm -hmm. um, specifically 2013, we had a ton of rain um, before mm -hmm. harvest in one week. Mm -hmm. And um, that led to a lot of real winemaking issues. But from a, from a real winemaking philosophy standpoint, I'm very hands-off. Mm -hmm. And um, not to the point of being a natural winemaker, um, because I don't want spoilage. Mm -hmm. But in terms of, of really manipulating things, um, you know, I just want the, the, the grapes to express themselves. Mm -hmm. And I, so far, it's worked pretty well for me, you know. And it's I think it shows in, in you know in the package. Mm -hmm. And do you think you talked a little bit about how? Um, your degree was kind of leaning you towards more um, manipulating it. 
So how did you get this more idea of being more hands-off? Was it from working at a different place? Did you just kind of find it on your own? Well, you know, actually, that's interesting. A lot, yes, working at different places, you realize, you know, I don't think we should have done that. Mm-hmm. You know, I think we should have just left it alone. Mm-hmm. I think we should have, you know, and you see the results, and you see that wines that can become disjointed. But really, I think it's deeper than that for me. It's more on a, at a personal level that it's it's just... I'll go back to the running. Um, when I didn't get a scholarship out of high school and my first college experience, I went to Carleton College in south of Minneapolis for one semester <laughs> and wasn't mature enough to handle it and went back to work, paid that off that semester I went and then joined the Marine Corps. During that time in the Marines, though, I spent, I, I really focused intensely on distance running. And, you know, I ran 100 miles a week and competed at high levels and ran Boston Marathon and Twin Cities Marathon and Grandma's Marathon and Marine Corps Marathon. And, and um, my real goal was to try to, you know, get into the Olympic Trials Marathon. And I, fitness-wise, I got within two minutes, you know, it was low 220s in, in the marathon. My fastest um, official time is 226. But, but that lifestyle is so intense and single-focused that... Um, a lot of the rest of my life was really out of balance. And so when that all ended with knee surgery, um, you know, just overuse basically with a, a less than perfect biomechanical stride, I, um, you know, I really rethought that whole time in my life where there was nothing but running. I had no relationships, I had nothing else but the running, and it was all eggs in one basket, and when that didn't work out, emotionally, it's, it's a tough thing. So, the whole balance thing and the equilibrium thing, I mean, I guess with balance, I, I kind of mean equilibrium too. It's, it's, it, 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 I was really, even in my life, I'm searching for a more balanced um, life without extremes, and, mm-hmm. and so the same goes for the winemaking you know, then coming back to an equilibrium. And, and, um, so it's just, it's actually more of a philo- personal philosophical thing mm-hmm. that, you know, I don't think you have to work 90 hours a week to get ahead because in the end, you aren't ahead mm-hmm. because of all the things you didn't have mm-hmm. or could have done or could have experienced while you were doing those 90 hours a week. Mm-hmm. You know, and I saw that happening in, corporate, in my corporate experience too. Mm-hmm. You know, when I worked at Citibank, I was working 80 to 90 hours a week. And um, it was it was brutal, and it just when I left, it was because it was so out of balance that I just couldn't see that lasting. And um, I want to do other things with my life, and and then once you have kids, that becomes really important. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, once you're a parent, your primary role is to create functioning good human beings, <laughs> and you can't do that if you're not there. Mm-hmm. You know, or if you're relying on someone else to do it, the public school system, that's not their job. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, so it's more of a life philosophy, the whole, the whole balance thing. And, and it, it, it's funny, I talk with young winemakers now, and, oh, and I want to try this, I want to try that. And I've been around it long enough now. My first harvest as an intern was 1997, where I'm starting to see, it's almost like the glasses I'm wearing today. 
they were popular in the 50s, they were popular in the 80s, <laughs> here they are again. It, it's, it's, you start hearing the same trials and tribulations, reinventing the wheel, um, you know, happening all over again. Mm-hmm. And so that's kind of a, an interesting side note, but you'd think we wouldn't have to keep doing that across generations. Mm-hmm. Maybe they should come here and watch this. <laughs> <laughs> Sage. Realize you don't have to reinvent the, the wheel. We've all, we've all we've done this, and people have done this before, mm-hmm. and they've suffered the consequences <laughs> for not making good decisions with winemaking, and you don't have to do that yourself. Mm-hmm. So anyway, um, you kind of mentioned this a couple of times, but what are some of the challenges, or what were some successes that happened with starting a winery specifically in this time in the Oregon's history? So, because like in yeah. the past. Like if you like did this the same thing in the '60s, how is it different now? And what were some of the well, it's ultra competitive now. Mm-hmm. Um, it you know the pioneers, the, the Dick Eraths and the you know uh, the, the um, Irene Winery and, and all that they they almost had to buy land and start from scratch. They didn't have the resources I had when I started. I started. Um, at a micro level, I started at, a, at an interesting time because the economy mm-hmm. was really bad. And I had one of the owners from Patton Valley Vineyard said, you know, tell me. When I told him I was starting up, this was um, 09. He said, you're crazy. And I said, well, I'll look at it this way. You know, I won't have wine to sell for two more years. And if the economy's still this bad in two years, we all have much bigger issues <laughs> than this project. Um, but to take it to a more macro level, um, it, even at that point, there were other wineries I could rent space in. Although it took me a little while to find the winery I'm at now, and that I've been at since the 2010 vintage. In 09, I rent. I, I had, you know, I made the wine at a, another winery in Dundee, and yeah, at a winery that doesn't typically do that. Mm-hmm. For um, doesn't allow clients to make their own wine. They make it for other, you know, clients, but. Um, yeah, so for me, the timing, and it's, you know, it's coincidental with, you know, the expansion of um, social media, with the internet, with virtual shopping, with mm-hmm. all of that. So it, it, the way we did it kind of fits into that, and it wouldn't have been possible to do that 30 years ago or 20 years ago. Um, and so, um, you know, if, if, if I were to try this in the 70s, I'm not sure how we would have approached it, <laughs> quite honestly, as a second career. Um, maybe we would have, but at, at my at the time I started, you know, 1997. Um, um, well, actually, 2009. I'm, you know, pushing 50 years old, so it, it, it wasn't the time to start a vineyard. Mm-hmm. Um, so actually, you know, um, the way we did it, it, it fits in with with where the industry is now. Mm-hmm. Now the industry is changing. It's um, and and. So where the industry is now, too, has enabled me to, you know, people, when they come to Oregon, are looking for small producers, um, family-type, you know, um, winery setups. And that's changing now, too. I mean, as, as an industry, we're, we are maturing and an awful lot of outside money from, say, Jackson family. Um, but even before Jackson family was gobbling up vineyards in the Illinois Hills, um, there were other wineries from France doing the same, and Domaine Serene's been here for a long time, but no one's talking about, um, I can't remember, Jadot, I believe, 
who has quietly made a big presence in the old Amity Hills, um, and they're buying more vineyard. And in Jackson family, the risk with all of that is is that when a, an entity like Jackson family comes in and buys up not only vineyards but other labels, which they've done quite a bit of mm -hmm. um, as well. Um, they say that they're not going to change the process, but ultimately they, it, it, it does change. And I saw that when Edna Valley Vineyard got bought by a much bigger entity. It becomes more of a homogenous project, a product that's less interesting, in my opinion, and less unique mm -hmm. across labels. So the, the, what, what my fear is that they're creating a new standard. Mm -hmm. My wines don't really fit into that standard. Well, there is a flip side to it, though. If you think about getting a consistent product across the board, like somewhere like Edna Valley or Chateau St. Michel, where it brings in people as maybe beginners at a lesser price to kind of get a taste of that. And then well, as they get experience, yeah. the, they will maybe gravitate towards something more boutique, which is what yeah. we do. There will always be yeah. a market for boutique. So that's what our yeah. focus really is. So that's the challenge though. It changes our marketing strategy a little bit in that we really have to be better at, at, at hitting the, the niche that has those, that type of buyer. Mm -hmm. So I, I think much of the resistance probably is the resistance to change or the status quo, but, um, but it will be more challenging for people like me too. Um, again, because we just have to be better. Mm -hmm. So what's in the future for Denison Sellers? Um, we're up to about 700 case production, so we're still tiny. Mm -hmm. um, the most immediate need that we have is a permanent tasting room presence. Because we rent space in another winery, we have access to the tasting room in that winery. And we can do you know visits by appointment. But we need a more steady presence, whether it be on 3rd Street in McMinnville or in Carleton or, or whatever. Um, mm -hmm. you know, so the most immediate thing that we're looking at is trying to establish that somehow, rather than packing up and going to an event every two weeks. Mm -hmm. Which becomes either fun, but they're tiresome. And you've lost they your weekend. They are fun, though. They are yeah. a lot of fun. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we go to Astoria. We do the McMinnville sip. Mm -hmm. We do the Northwest uh, Food and Wine Festival in Portland. Yeah. We try to make a weekend out of it. A lot of times, I, I won't drive home at night afterwards. I just yeah. we make a weekend out of those, and it's fun. You get to see a lot of different people, you know, from all over the place, and that's where we get some of our mailing list, you know, and the people that come back from year to year, and you kind of get to know certain people, and sometimes you know develop friendships with others, and. Yeah, it's. But establishing that that it's good. It's work. Establishing a permanent, consistent um, point of sale. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You know, is is our next because again, we're not going to be that that winery that has the vineyard, where people are going to come see you and <coughs> excuse me, <coughs> and and buy wine. You know, we're we're going to have to establish something more retail. What has been your favorite part of being in the industry, but not necessarily being a part of the vineyard or making the grapes? Well, I actually am fairly involved with the processing since the beginning. Um, we've 
myself and the boys and some of the, like the Kip family and um, even the Johnsons at times have come for the processing of the grapes along with other friends and things. So um, actually very involved with that. When we first started um, going out to the vineyards to check on when it was time to pick um, and coordinating with the, the growers, I would go out with Tim and be a part of it. And what I, it was just fascinating to be a part of, you know, analyzing and kind of getting to know the different clones, like the 667777 Pomard, how they taste. Mm -hmm. And then um, also going into while the grapes are processing or just, you know, in barrel, um, also being a part of what uh, barrels are being chosen and for what components and what they bring to it and what level of toast. So all of those things that I came in as a complete outsider, just observing and kind of dropping in when he was meeting with the barrel salesperson and mm -hmm. he would show me then what the different ones were and why he was choosing these. And, um, and then when Joel would come in, um, the, the grower, mm -hmm. um, he, he'd pick some of the different ones based on what he liked. But, um, and then part of the blending our kitchen turns into a lab <laughs> and we have the glasses all set up and he's very scientific about it and he will make the blends you know based on you know very scientific structural ways of analyzing everything so I'll just get the opportunity to taste the ones and you know he'll kind of have his favorites and then I'll in interject my input of what mm -hmm. I like and then the blends are made from, you know, us kind of teaming up on that. But him doing all the work and I just, you know, get, get a chance to taste <laughs> and pick my favorites. So, um, and then the events have been really fun for me too. I, so I do help out with the bigger events and sometimes the smaller ones. And um, so I enjoy that and interacting with the public mm -hmm. and building relationships. Yeah. So. And then um, more broadly, how do you guys, what do you think is in the future for the Oregon wine industry? It's a good question. Um, because I think it's, we're in a similar place um, you know, that Sonoma County found themselves back 20 years or 25 years ago. And um, it, it's, again, it, it's bigger entities uh, larger production facilities. Um, I think that we're just growing into a more sophisticated wine region, um, and it's. And I think we should. I think we're the best place in North America to grow Pinot Noir, and um, so there's no reason why we shouldn't do that. Mm -hmm. um, it'll just be interesting to see how that, you know, interacts with Oregon's mentality, which is very individualistic and not of um, an urban mindset where um, because when you look at Napa and Sonoma anymore it's Sonoma's still a little bit more of the rural kind of um, individualistic winery mentality but not as much as it was and most of those people going there or a lot of people going there are coming from the Bay Area very very urban um, sense of taste sense of what they want both service-wise experience-wise um, and wine quality wise and so you know we, we um, 
I think we're going to see more and more focus on, you know, I know that you know, we're building a luxury hotel in McMinnville right now. Um, the Allison in Newburgh has been very successful. Mm -hmm. And um, I imagine in 10 or 15 years, you won't recognize Dundee as well. Mm. Because it's not, you know, even in the, in the, the eight years that we've lived in McMinnville and have the chance to go through Dundee on a regular basis, um, it's not, even now, it's not quite the same town it was. Um, the Toll House Ted poster's gone, and the little purple shack that, was, that it was hanging on is gone. And, <laughs> um, you know, people are building new, new structures there, and you can tell they're planning from an infrastructure standpoint to really upgrade things, their roads, their sidewalks, they'll actually have sidewalks that, you know, <laughs> Um, and I think once the Dundee bypass is finished, that will that will take off. But but I also think that part of it is the the, the, the money to help make that happen is the growth side of, of what we're doing here, and the, the entities that are coming in and putting a lot of money and effort into the region. And so I, I imagine we will definitely be a little more um, um, just sophisticated with the, with the whole package. You know. And again, as a, as a tiny producer, as a boutique producer, you have to keep up mm -hmm. um, with wine quality. And so I, I, I suspect that, um, you know, this, the last, since the last, you know, Great Recession, 2008, um, the number of winery licenses in Oregon has expanded just dramatically. And a lot of small producers kind of doing the same thing we're doing. Mm -hmm. um, a lot of those people won't succeed. And, 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 and typical to any small business startup, a lot of it will be because they try to grow too quickly. Mm -hmm. They try to do too many things at once. They weren't, you know. But also the competition is going to be fierce enough, I think. It's already gotten extremely competitive in the valley to sell wine. It just has. When I show up at another wine shop in Portland, they, they don't need another Oregon Pinot Noir on their shelf. Mm -hmm. You know, there are just so many of us right now. So um, we're all going to have to be more sophisticated in the way we market and move our wine. Mm -hmm. So again, I think it's it, it's going to it, it's going to move us out of that quaint backwoods place and into a more um, more worldly place, I guess. Mm -hmm. Whether that's good or bad depends on who you are and what your perspective is on that. But. Um, it's just kind of the natural progression of things in, in premium wine regions, mm -hmm. especially we haven't been around 400 years like Burgundy or, or you know Bordeaux. So um, we're still very young mm -hmm. in terms, of, or even California for that matter. I mean, you know, we're just a really young wine area with extremely high quality fruit. So we're going to get there, <laughs> but um, it's going to happen. But it's you know again, growth will be uncomfortable for for a lot of a lot of folks. Mm -hmm. And then um, what advice do you guys have for someone who wants to start a winery like you guys did? Um, find rich relatives. <laughs> and again, I, 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 part of what really struck me when I moved to Oregon, and this was in January of January of 06, we moved out from San Luis Obispo. Um, and it, particularly for me in the wine making, the wine industry, was that there was almost an anti-intellectual bent to it. 
that I found a little bit surprising. Hmm. Um, I'm sorry. Go back to the question. I, I, I was going somewhere with this, but I, I lost track. Yeah, no. Um, what advice do you have for someone? Advice. Get the education. That where I was going with that is get mm -hmm. the education, get a background, so that you know how what you're doing, mm -hmm. in, in the winemaking side. Yeah. And I found it shocking this 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 almost an attitude that having a degree was almost a detriment to making mm -hmm. fine wine because it's formulaic or because it's this or that. Mm -hmm. And um, it surprised me because you don't see that in California. In fact, if you don't have a degree in California, you're not even getting an entry level job. Mm -hmm. You know, in a, in a, in a, and even in small wineries. Um, so that whole perspective shocked me, but I would still say get the background, mm -hmm. number one. Get the funding, number two. <laughs> and do not try to grow too quickly. Mm. And, and that's, um, and understand the economics of it, that, that, that um, it is a step, it has to be a stepwise thing unless you just have enough cash that you can, you know, um, um, be in the red for years at a time. Mm -hmm. um, you know, and, um, and just be smart about growth. And realize too that it's a marketing job. Mm -hmm. In the end, it's a sales and marketing job. And you know, the, the other thing that I would say too is, you know, we've known people that have come in, maybe, you know, got frustrated and you know, there was a guy he went to school with that came and got the degree and played around with it for a few years and then ended up going back to his, his regular job that he had done before in banking or whatever it was and, you know, Life is a journey, so no matter whether you stay in it or you're just try it for a few years, you know you might need to do that just to get it out of your system and realize, you know, maybe my day job wasn't so bad. <laughs> but you know, you have that perspective of trying it, and you wouldn't have had that had you not right. done it. But if you are serious about it, you're going to be in for the long haul. It's going to be work just like any other well, thing you're going to do. Well, it's a long haul type product too. Yeah. I mean, it's not like brewing where you can. If you screw it up, you can start a new batch next week. Mm -hmm. You know, I've got to wait a year. So. So, and it's not a great way to become wealthy. Yeah. In fact, don't think you're going to get rich quick. If you're in it to try <laughs> to become wealthy, um, I would not recommend it. Just keep your day job. Yeah. It's, <laughs> it's got to be something you really like to do. Thank you for joining us for this edition of the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast. And thank you to all the supporters, partners, donors, and interviewees who have made our project a success. Be sure to check out our website at OregonWineHistoryArchive.org for more interviews, plus photographs, wine labels, and more. And stay tuned for more interviews as we tell the story of Oregon wine. The Oregon Wine History Archive podcast is brought to you by the Oregon Wine History Archive at Linfield College. The executive producer is Kiana Anderson. Producers are Rich Schmidt, Rachel Woody, Stephanie Hoffman, and Camille Weber. And a special thanks to all the Linfield Archive students who have contributed to these oral history interviews over the years.